Hey guys, it's Dr. Boca from Unpolished Therapy. It's October 29th and we're doing things a little bit differently. Rachel and I heard the devastating news of the untimely death of Matthew Perry and we felt imperative that we got on the air so that we could break down some of the wreckage and process the feelings that we're having. So we hope that you'll listen and mourn along with us. What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Good morning, Dr. Boca. I know it's Sunday. Thank you for having like office hours. <laughs> With me. <laughs> Always for weekend. you. Always for you, Rach. Always. But I mean, I felt like this is breaking news. And I was at a wedding yesterday when everybody was kind of like, oh my gosh, did you just see what came across your phone? Did you just see what you came across the phone? And I, you know, went to my phone and I saw that we had lost Matthew Perry. I mean, I could not believe this. It hit me so hard. And everybody's looking at me like, like we're at a wedding, like let's have fun. And I'm like, but he was a friend. And I mean that like half joking and half serious. Like he was the staple of college. You know, we watched him and, and all of our friends and we watched, you know, ER and Seinfeld. And then we went out for the night and not in that order, but regardless. And then we went out for the night on Thursdays and he was always my favorite character. And it was just, it was so sad that I'm really glad that we both felt the need to get on the mic and talk about this because I'm still having a little bit of difficulty processing all of it. Yeah. And we're going to do that. And I don't want to make it about me, but I just realized how much older I am than you because when you said this was college, <laughs> when I kind of went back and did my homework on when exactly Friends came out, it was 1994. Like my college days were done in 1994. <laughs> so you have a couple of years on me, I guess, in the other direction. I wasn't trying to make you feel worse I than know, you already do. I know. I know. But the age thing is kind of what hit me because he's only 54 years old. Mm -hmm. And so you know, he's practically my contemporary here. And all of ours, I guess, just from the generational standpoint, that whether you are in college or after college or not, that Friends, the iconic show that Friends was, has hit all of us in such a way that it, when you say he was your friend, he literally was. And mm -hmm. as they all were, and the show in and of itself, one of the things that the media has been reporting on and that we as the, the viewers and the fans realized all along is that they really were the first quote-unquote ensemble cast that there was no star and then co-stars. They really collectively were equals Mm -hmm. and a family. And they even have now been touting the cast as the way that we as society or the viewers and that generation, the kids and so on and so forth, when we realize that our friends, quote unquote, can also be our family. Yeah. And that whole family, FR, mm -hmm. right? And they really set a trend and 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 made a mark. With that being said, speaking of friends and family, so you were at a wedding. I, my twin brother, who I know we've talked mm -hmm. about a little bit on the show over the course of time, was in town and he and I were out and we were getting in the car and I was doing something in the back seat. And when I jumped into the front seat, he was in the passenger and he was on his phone and he's like, oh God, you're not going to like this. And of course that like mama bear thing kind of mm -hmm. came and I was like, oh my God, what's wrong? Like some, 
And then he told me, and I was just like, oh my God, like what a bummer. Like what a bummer. There are some that really hit us. And it's interesting because last weekend I was at a a Halloween party and the theme was 90210. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another iconic generational loss, right? Because we were all talking about Luke Perry at the time and we were all talking about just how inundated that cast has been with misfortune. So I guess in my head, I was already still reminiscing about Luke Perry. And then when this happened with Matthew Perry, I'm like, oh my gosh, like all of these iconic actors and actresses that we grew up with who really were family to us and their lives. And now we're at that age, like you said, we're at that age, like these things could start happening to us. And then the question goes to, okay, well, you know, we always have these conversations amongst our friends. I have several people in my life who have also lost a father at a young age. And we sit there and we're like, which is better? Is it to go from a medical condition, right? Or an accident or something else? Like, which is better for the person? Which is better for the family? But what it also leads to is the question of how does it feel when people have mental health issues that you really either weren't aware of or they were making progress toward and what impact does that have? And so it just brings up so much stuff. And of course, you know, with Matthew Perry, you know, again, this is quote unquote breaking news for us. I think everybody went to the fact that it was substance related. And yet what they're saying is at this current moment that they didn't see any substances around him and that he supposedly had been sober. So unfortunately, though, even if he had had a heart attack, that could have been induced from a long history of substance use. Or we could find out that it was something totally different. But it does start bringing up other icons who have had mental health issues, substance abuse issues. And it's just, you know, you sit here and you're just like, oh. It is such a loss. Yeah, that's a lot to kind of swallow and digest and process and so on and so forth. But you're right about all of it. And not that it makes it any any easier because it doesn't, but it's just the shame of it all that after all of these years of him being such a big name and such a big star and such a great guy to mm-hmm. boot, that he had finally kind of realized that the demons inside have to come out and by outing himself publicly to share with the world and to help others get through the substance abuse and and the attic in him Mm -hmm. that he was. And one of the big things that he had said over the course of when he was promoting the book, which by the way, I mean, the book, it, 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 I think it was almost to the year. Of yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't like, out for very long. No, it, I think like November 1st or something like that was was of last year was when the book came out or in that time frame. But really almost eerie that it's been exactly a year. The, the, his book that came out, which is his memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And mm-hmm. that big terrible thing, the elephant in the room, right, is the fact that he struggled tremendously with drugs and alcohol going back since he was, I think, the age of 14. And I went back and I did a little bit of like a deep dive, really just legitimately from like last night to now, right? Because again, mm-hmm. for the listeners out there, today's Sunday, October 29th. This episode probably will not air for another week or two, but we really wanted to ditch the couch, grab the mics and process this probably selfishly for Dr. Boca and I. Yeah. 
But totally. again, my, my my big famous notorious line, if we're thinking it, maybe others are thinking it too. So mm-hmm. forgive us if between now and when the episode airs, we've gotten a lot more information, but we're doing this for our own unpolishedness as, as well as for you guys too. But that being said, Dr. Boca, so the little bit of the, the deep dive I took um, in the last 12 hours was that Matthew Perry remembers like yesterday, that very first sip the first sip that then became the impetus, I guess, Mm -hmm. to going down into the abyss of what this path would be. And without going through his whole backstory, but just the the broad stroke brush on this, is that um, his parents divorced when he was only a baby. His father, which I, I forgot and then I was reminded, was the Old Spice actor in the I commercial. Never, yeah. I so did like not know that. Handsome, uh-huh. Yeah. So, wow. and you know, Matthew's Perry, Matthew Perry's humor, you know, is, is just so iconic and, and mm-hmm. you know, he's one of the greats, but he was like, yeah, so that wasn't that great with the ladies because they weren't <laughs> coming over to hang out with me. They wanted to sort of hang out with my dapper dad and his mother. She actually was, I think either like, I don't want to say press secretary, but something right hand to someone in politics in Canada. He was from Canada. Mm -hmm. So his mom was certainly not, you know, a wallflower and nor was she, you know, hanging at home, you know, just doing laundry or whatnot. But they divorced at a very young age and both of them went on to um, get remarried and and have other children. So he had a a slew of step siblings. uh, no, must have been half siblings or, half. or half. yeah, unless I, I unless was, the other spouse came maybe in with them. and yeah. and pro, or or maybe both, but but mm-hmm. nevertheless, uh, something I got to kick out of I didn't know this, but Keith Morrison from Dateline, you know, he's got that iconic voice, voice. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's his stepfather. His oh. mom married Keith Morrison. I did not know that until. This is why I love you, Rach. You do all the deep dive while I am. Well, you break it down. No, that's okay. You (laughs) you break it. I'm going to, I'm going to lay it out and then you're going to piecemeal it back together. Perfect. Perfect. Um, But so what I, what I want to say amongst many things I want to say is that Matthew Perry, when he wrote this book, one of the most notable things I remember that he had said to Diane Sawyer in his iconic sit down with her when he was promoting his book last year mm-hmm. was that one of the reasons that he wanted to come out publicly is that because of the platform that was friends mm-hmm. and all of the quote unquote friends he had, and by friends, I mean his fans and the fan base and I guess the platform that he had as a result of his fame and fortune, it really left him no choice but to try to help other people because he had been so lost and so down the rabbit hole. And to climb out after all of those years, it was just his way. And when he helped others realize that, you know what? I can help you get the light back in the darkness that I see behind your eyes and helping mm-hmm. others gave gave him light too. That when both people realized that they were helping each other, that mm-hmm. you know, Matthew Perry might have been throwing out the life raft to someone else, but that's someone else who was in such need of his help. Mm-hmm. When they realized that by allowing Matthew to help him, that person was helping him in return. I mean, it's a no brainer, right? And and that's kind of powerful. 
It's very powerful. And if you think about it, it's so interesting as we're even doing this. This is totally an aside, but the news keeps breaking. I just keep getting updates on my screen. But that's what the substance abuse field is really built on, if you think about it. I mean, if you look at the AA model at all, they always have sponsors. And what it does is it's because other people have been through this. And as they're going through it, they're able to share their experiences with other people and help them, which also gives them a purpose and a sense of being, and it gives them joy, and it makes sure that they know that somebody else isn't suffering and that they were able to come in and help them. So it is, it's such a core process for the substance abusers. And you find out that so many of them become mental health professionals eventually. And they usually specialize in the substance abuse field because they get such gratification helping other individuals going through the process and helping to save them. Yeah. The thing that's so sad though, is that, and obviously, I mean, this isn't my question because I'm not the owner of this question, right? But we hear it time and time again, is that for someone like Matthew Perry, and I guess for any celebrity that has fallen down this dark path, it's natural to say for someone who seemingly has it all, right? Mm -hmm. You're at the top of your game and you have the charm and the looks and the money and the success and the adoration of all, right? Like it doesn't get higher than that. And yet there is this darkness inside of them and this feeling of alone. And that Matthew Perry said in the book that he he writes that he was so alone. And he, he, I think there was at one point he was, be nominated for an Emmy for Friends. He had the number one movie at the time. I think it was um, The Whole Nine Yards. Whole Nine Yards. Or or, or the one with Salma Hayek or one of those. Something like that. Or or maybe it wasn't that, but it was another movie. And and it didn't matter that, that he was still on the phone with drug dealers or going into people's houses and and looking for their pills. And because again, this is drugs and alcohol. It started Mm -hmm. with alcohol. And then it transferred over to, to pills after he was screwing around on set on some movie. Right, he got hurt, right? Of an accident. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like someone gave him a Vicodin. And then fast forward, it turned into at the height of, of the pill popping, which by the way, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but he kind of said back and forth from alcohol. And, and he would say, when, when you saw me on Friends and I was packing on the pounds, that was from alcohol. And when you saw me very thin, mm-hmm. that was because I had gotten off of the alcohol and then I was into the pills. And I think at the height of the pill popping, he was taking like 55 opioids a day. It's, I mean, the idea I, of that, Dr. Boca. I, I know. I, I know. It is mind-blowing. And I have this side I don't know what it is, but this obsession, I guess, with watching all the opioid shows right now on Netflix mm-hmm. and the miniseries and everything. And because it's just, I mean, we can have a whole nother episode just on that, but it is just in a crazy way of how addictive those drugs are. But going back to the question that everybody's like talking about, which is mm-hmm. he looked like he had his, you know, his act together and he was at the height of all of these things. Like, what is that emptiness? What are those demons? And the psychologist in me, you know, I don't know him, so I can't, you know, do this. But if this was a a patient of mine, I would be going back to the beginning and you hit on something, which is his parents got divorced very young. And by no means do I want to say, oh, his parents did this to him. But my guess is that, you know, I think you said this at one point that they went back and each of them found respective spouses. And one of the, you know, the father was the old spice man. So he was probably very busy working, getting a lot of attention 
especially from women, may not have been giving it much to Matthew. Mom was busy in politics and found apparently a successful husband and starting a new life that way. And he was left to kind of fend for himself. You know, the attention might not have been there. And I don't know, and you probably know this from digging, if there were other kids involved, my guess would be that they both started lives and Matthew kind of just sat there in the middle, like, what about me? And also following in the footsteps of successful parents, you also run the risk of not feeling worthy enough and good enough because the lit, the, excuse me, I just learned it's the lit must test is, um, you know, it's it's very hard because that's what your standard of excellence is. And so when that happens at a young age and you grow up in an environment like that, even before the divorce, but where you're not really seen and you're not really heard and a lot of love and attention isn't given to you and you're vying for that attention amongst very important people, you start to develop a very low self-worth, which oftentimes leads to different types of behavioral patterns. And one of those is trying to be the center of attention, trying to be the funny one, which was Chandler on the show, but also just trying to trying to get if the attention's not from his own parents or the people around him, he's getting it from the rest of the, the world, but it doesn't fill the initial abandonment wound that he he once had. But here's the thing, though, and I want to touch on a couple of different things. First of all, he did say in interviews and also in the book that this feeling of not being enough, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so so you hit the nail on the head with that. And yes, his way of kind of filling that void through the humor. And he even said, you know, I, I, I dated beautiful women mm-hmm. and they were stars and, and they liked me and all that. But his way of like putting the wall up was, oh my God, if they find out if they only know I'm, I'm not enough or mm-hmm. I have to be funny to mask whatever my sadness is, et cetera, et cetera, they won't like or love me anymore and they'll right. leave me. So I'll leave them first. Right. Yes, and and which he's is admitted a- that. And that's a typical, and again, I haven't followed him. You know, I like to keep them pure yeah. on the set, yeah. you know, or on the screen. But that is a typical pattern of behavior for people. It's not the only pattern of behavior, but it is a very, very typical pattern of behavior that people have who have been abandoned emotionally early in life. But here's my question, though, because I think this speaks to the broader, bigger picture of mainstream. And by mainstream, I mean regular non-celebrities. Mm-hmm. And the question, Dr. Boca, is if someone like a Matthew Perry or, I mean, go down the list of the celebrities that, you know, the darkness is just everywhere with them and their untimely death is now amongst, you know, this pretty shitty group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to be in that club. Nope. But to have such success and still feel that darkness, right? And you go down this path of demise. What does that say for regular people, okay, who there's plenty of people who have had unfortunate childhoods, whether it's a, a financial woes or physical or mental abuse or product of divorce. I mean, if this can happen to someone on the highest caliber of what we would deem to be success mm-hmm. in life. And they still can't hack it, even if they're getting millions and millions and millions and millions of clicks and likes and money and all that. What does it say to the regular people that are suffering? But this is kind of counterintuitive. You know, the way that I look at it is because it's almost worse. Why? Tell me. I want to know why. Because he feels even like a bigger fraud with all of these people celebrating him, right? That 
he feels like an, a, a complete fraud inside. The average person, you know, okay, so maybe five or six people are going to see something in me that isn't so great, or it's much easier to protect myself against these few people. But my entire livelihood would come crashing down if all of my fans knew this, or all of the people on the set, or the women, these high profile women. You know, that's a mm-hmm. lot of pressure. And it, highlights the emptiness inside because you are now looking towards all these, you know, you feel like, oh my God, all these external factors should be making me feel better, you know, in your, in your warped perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I have everything. I am uh, like an unworthy. I shouldn't be getting this. this. I don't deserve this. If they only knew I have to keep this wall up. It's a lot of internal dialogue of self-loathing, stress, anticipatory fraud and finding out that exposure, I guess, being exposed. And so that's why we see so many individuals because they can have everything. And so they chase the dragon over and over because they know that they can keep having more, but it just doesn't fill the void. And so when it doesn't fill the void, they're like, what the hell is wrong with me? Whereas the average person they can sit there and they can say, this really sucks. This is horrible. I'm, I, I, I'm going to smoke. I'm going to drink. But they're not disappointing many people. They're not getting hurt by many people. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going the extremes here. I mean, there's a, mm-hmm. a whole range in between. But they don't feel as fraudulent because they're not in the limelight. And look, we, we can look at this and see it throughout entertainment. It's usually these really big people who you, uh, like you said, it looks like they have everything together. How could they not be happy? Look at Robin Williams. I mean, he's a prime example. One of my dearest, dearest youth. I'm going to- Icons. Yeah. I'm going to call it a crush. It wasn't a crush, but an icon, right? I mean, I was devastated. I mean, out of all the people that I think we've lost in the last 20 years, like to me, that one didn't necessarily- shock me as much as it just hurt me because I thought he was so, uh, he was such a gift and such a light. And so, but again, it was that pressure that he had to constantly be on and constantly do for others and constantly lighten the mood that his feelings couldn't surface. And he just felt more and more fraudulent. Well, yeah. I mean, and he was one of the most brilliant, brilliant brilliant actors, comedian figure in the um, entertainment field that that I can remember. And mm-hmm. I remember being devastated too. And the sad thing is, and maybe when he had passed away, it, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I'm going to guess that maybe it was right on the cusp of when social media was becoming the beast that it is now. I mean, it certainly wasn't, wasn't the, the vessel of all that, that it was when he passed away. But it does lend to the fact that his darkness, his depression, his past, his upbringing was kept a secret and nobody really knew. And I think that's what made the blow of his loss that much greater because he was so unbelievably brilliant. But I also want to argue the point that his brilliance was directly linked to how dark his mind was and how deep the depression was, mm-hmm. that was the fuel that he used yeah. to be the brilliant creative genius 
that he was. And that's the piece that I struggle with because again, I mean, we're not, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Yeah. Most comedians, right? I mean, even the cleanest of comedians, mm-hmm. their material is coming from a place of raw real. emotion yeah, right? real life. And, and real life and where they have now taken what is their, let's call it, bowl of lemons of life and they've now turned it into lemonade that we can laugh at right mm-hmm. and the self-deprecation and so on and so forth and Matthew Perry also I mean his comedic timing was genius Impeccable, and yeah. unlike others the thing that really gets me though Dr. Boca is that one of the things he did say recently was that when he took that first sip of alcohol when he was at the mere age of 12, 13, 14 years old, right? It was almost like an innate feeling that he said to himself, and I think he even mentioned what kind of, it was some kind of cheap bottle of wine or something like that. And it went down so smoothly, but how he felt in that moment, he said something along the lines of, oh my God, this must be how normal people feel. Mm. And that really hit me. Mm-hmm. That from such a young age, he emotionally in the inside, right? When no yeah. one else was around and he was left to his own devices of what was going on in his own mind, that he felt whatever for him the opposite of normal was. And yeah. it's just sad. So sad. And I feel, and you know, I, I can imagine it would be like a blanket being put over a freezing child or a freezing person. You know, if you're not freezing, you don't know what it would feel like to have that other, right? And so a lot of us who aren't addicts, we don't know what it's really like. You know, for us, like I was out last night, I could have a drink and, you know, or two, maybe a third. Maybe more. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) And I can go on with my life the next day, right? And it doesn't do anything for me other than, you know, there's less inhibition, But that's it. And I wouldn't look at a drink today and be like, I need it. So it's very hard for us to kind of wrap ourselves around, which is why, or wrap our minds around that, which is why sometimes when we had that discussion with Lissa about food, you know, quote unquote, food addiction, and I was really saying, I do believe there's a genetic component or a genetic predisposition to some of this because there are some of us who could come from similar backgrounds, right? Because at, at one point, Luke Perry, even though he came from famous individuals, he also, though, there are other people who came from famous individuals, and he also, though, had experiences of abandonment, and not every person who comes from a famous background and potentially had issues of abandonment use drugs and alcohol and become addicts, right? So there's got to be something else there. And I do think it's a nature-nurture discussion and the two of them kind of blend together. But for him, it was the blanket. And once you have that, you now know what it feels like to feel comforted, soothed, protected, all of those things, which are exactly what he didn't necessarily feel through the emotional abandonment that he probably had lying underneath through his early childhood experiences. Well, and two things to that I want to say. One is, one of the other things he touched on in the book is that, you know, because remember, there was a period of time where he he had gotten sober. I mean, he was mm-hmm. in and out of rehab, I think, 15, many times. 16 times. He mm-hmm. went to um, detox. I think he said upwards of 60 plus times. 
times. I mean, so this was not his first rodeo. Okay. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he was saying is how when a, a, an addict goes through detox, Mm -hmm. right? That is literally hell. Okay. Whatever we would imagine hell to be addicts will say, I've been to hell. I know what it is. I know what it feels like. It is the worst thing ever, 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 time, multiply, whatever, okay? Now, Hugh Perry was quoted as saying in the book and verbally that even though he knew repeatedly the torture, the Mm -hmm. physical torture of what detox was going to be for him for two, three, four, five, six days in a row, Mm -hmm. time and time again when he would relapse, he still chose to go back to the drugs and alcohol. And again, I mean, if that's not addiction at its finest, I don't know what is. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, in hearing this news yesterday, and again, to the listeners out there, remember, we're recording this Sunday, October 29th. We found out yesterday that Matthew Perry, at the age of 54, was found dead in his hot tub, potentially drowning as of now. We we don't know, which I want to get to that in a minute, Dr. Boca, because mm-hmm. you and I are both under the assumption this is not like he relapsed again, which that piece of this puzzle we want to get to on the implications mm-hmm. that decades and decades of drug and alcohol abuse, even if you do finally find your way and you are living a sober life, the damage has already been done. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in catching up on all this, it reminded me quite some time back, but we had Adam Jablin, who is now a life coach. Right. Yes. I just wrote his name down. Okay. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So remember, he authored the book, Lotsaholic, from a to a Superman, right? And something that I remember he told us when he sat down with us, that is very indicative of what Matthew Perry wrote in the book, is that in the spurts where he was sober, right? what it would take to trigger him back into drugs and alcohol was either something great to happen mm-hmm. right. or something bad to happen. There was no like in, in between, between really. So something amazing could trigger going down the rabbit hole the same way a tragic trigger would as well. And and that's something that kind of reminded me of maybe that's a commonality between addicts? Well, oh, triggers, absolutely. And when we work with addicts, we do identify what their triggers are in those high-risk situations that they find themselves in so that we can give them plans to work through it. But, you know, each individual does vary. You know, for some people, the same way food becomes a- addictive, right? You know, if you start exploring with people, how did they develop their addiction with food? A lot will say, well, our families used it for celebration. Every time something good happened, we ate. Others will say, you know what? Every time we had something bad happen, I needed to put that blanket on me. So I would go and find like Oreos in the pantry. And I remember like being able to breathe a sigh of relief once I had that Oreo inside of me. So it could be good. It could be bad. It typically is not the everyday little blips on the radar. But part of that is because it's emotional dysregulation. That's what oftentimes triggers this. When we're abandoned or we feel empty inside or we feel unloved, unseen, unheard, we become emotionally dysregulated. And it's in that emotional dysregulation that we try to soothe. That could be in high moments. It could be in low moments. Some people do both. Some people only do one. It's based on what their learned behavior was in their early childhood experiences. 
Well, I appreciate you clarifying that because I think that that's a, a, a big tip. And I think it's important to kind of put the icing on the cake in terms of, of, of how this stuff works. There's one other thing. It, there okay. is a lot of what we call dual diagnosis when it comes okay. to substance abuse. And, and we could bring a substance abuse expert on, which I am not, but there is a lot of dual diagnosis. And when I say dual diagnosis, it usually means that there's other mental health issues going on. One that tends to be a correlated one that happens frequently is bipolar disorder. And so that's why you would see some extremes of the highs and the lows that they're using substances in both of those. But we also see depression. We also see anxiety. We also see, you know, a, a plethora of other ones. But bipolar disorder does oftentimes a comorbid diagnosis. And therefore, you um, have people who do it all the time. And once you learn the behavior that it feels like a blanket, whether it's in the good times or when it's in the bad times, then it doesn't matter anymore. Because even in the, in the opposite time, you still are searching for that because it becomes ironically, and like no pun intended, it becomes your friend. It doesn't leave you. It is there for you. It makes those moments manageable. You learn to like who you become on that because it is still better than the authentic self that you're hiding you know, hiding from the world. And so that's why you start to see people doing it every day or Matthew Perry doing 60 or 50 pills at a time because you want to chase that high. And unfortunately, alcohol and drugs have you build tolerance to. And so you have to keep chasing the high and it has to go a little bit further each time in order to feel that blanket on top of you again. So th the thing that I kind of want to shift to um, a little bit, because I think that this is what's so devastating is that as far as we know right now, he was living a sober life, right? He, as far as we he, know. The, the eerie thing is that in the Diane Sawyer interview, she said, what's your perfect day, right? Mm -hmm. He said, wow, my perfect day. And again, the irony is not lost on me here. He said, my perfect day amongst being healthy, right, mm -hmm. was being active and playing yeah. pickleball and how much he loves pickleball, right? Mm -hmm. And um. The other piece of this is that when they did the interview, it was in his home in Los Angeles and they were kind of perusing around the backyard and you saw his beautiful pool and overlooking mm -hmm. the, the the lights of Los Angeles. And that to me kind of creeped me out a little bit because... His last, we, in, in, his last Instagram post. His la yeah, his that, last right? Instagram post was in the hot tub and making reference to how warm and beautiful the, the water felt. And, mm -hmm. and in the interview, again, a year ago, his perfect day was playing pickleball yep, and being active. And I want to kind of connect the dots now to the fact that, again, as far as we know, he was living a healthy life and was clean from drugs and alcohol. So it begs the discussion that after years and years and years of the damage you're doing to your body and all of the surgeries he had had, I, he had he had ruptured his colon many years ago, and he oh, I was didn't know that coma for I think about two weeks or whatnot, mm. and and he was put on some type of life support where like that was the final straw. Whereas apparently there were other patients in the hospital that were also put on this type of life support. Forgive me that I don't know exactly what it was called. All of those patients didn't make it because that that's really like at the tail end, he survives. He I think it was like a 2% chance that he was going to survive. And then amongst um, various surgeries, whether it was his colon, whether it was his uh, esophagus or his stomach or all of the things that his organs were really, for a lack of a better word, completely fucked up from all the years of drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. 
the toll that it takes, even when you do then get sober and clean yourself up, the damage. And if we're going to now draw our own unpolished conclusion here that let's just say, fine, it was not foul play. He he hadn't fallen back down the rabbit hole and his heart, I mean, Gave at out. some point too much is too much. Mm-hmm. And is that potentially what could have happened? And how sad it is that we have to take stock now. And all we have is now we are not promised tomorrow. And is it really worth whatever that potential high is that you're chasing to then give up if your heart is then going to give up on you, even when you've now made a decision that you're going to not give up yourself on life. And all he wanted to do was to live a sober life and help others so that they didn't fall down the same path. It's tragic. It's like, it goes back to the existential question. It was like, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, of all the people, he is making amends and trying to do it differently. Like, why him versus somebody who's just breaking the law 24-7 or murdering people or what have you? But the reality is, look, this stuff is serious. This does lead to damage in, uh, in organs, but... They are not in a place when they're making these decisions, unfortunately, where they can say, live for today and make those changes now so that I can live 20 years from now in that great space. It it doesn't process that way. And Rach, because you and I are not addicts, right? It's a really hard mindset to get in. And all I can say to those listeners out there, if you know anybody who is struggling with addiction, the best gift that we can give them is to encourage them to start to talk to somebody. Because if we can get them into treatment, but not just treatment that is a detox and a couple of life lessons, but one where we can really do some exploration into how they got here, also teach them behavioral skills, cognitive skills, work with the family, work with the environment in which they're living in, really partner with them. I mean, we go back to um, Elisa when she came on and she talked about all the addicts that she's worked on and you have to go to the soul bottom, right? You have to get to that Mm -hmm. bottom darkest place so that you can get to soul and kind of bring yourself through it. Sometimes that's what you need, but you need help and support during that. And so that's our best chance of getting people to start to appreciate that what they're doing now is going to hurt them. But when they're in that cycle of addiction, their brain just is not online the same way that our brain is online. That cognitive space, we have to deal with the the, the emotional hole that's in them also. And that's oftentimes neglected. It's a newer way of dealing with addiction because it's a totality. It's not just the, the mind that we're working with. So it is tragic. It is devastating. But the light that I can see out of this darkness, at least as a reframe, is it does bring me comfort knowing that his wish for a perfect day, he got to live. Like to Mm. me, if you're going to die, tragically, but to be able to die in the perfect day that you already stated a year earlier, and to have that be the moment where you can sit there and reflect and be like, oh, Look at how far I've come in this year, and this was my perfect day, and I just got it. We didn't know what the ending was going to be, but at least we know he got that perfect day, and that brings me comfort. Mm. It's poetic. I'm polishedly poetic, but that's what we are. (laughs) Nonetheless, yeah. 
you know, we're, yeah, it, it's, we're, I think we're all still kind of like in a, in a little bit of um, like shock and awe a little bit. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. So it's, it's absolutely crazy. And I just have to say something. I can't tell you how many times in like the last couple of months we'll be talking about somebody, whether it's my husband and I or a friend of mine. And we sit there and we go, wait, are they alive? Are they still alive? Like and and we're like no they died I'm like no, they didn't die and we have to Google it so mm. it, it's so interesting because as as there are those that will oh that of course we're going to remember like you yeah. can't say to me Robin Williams is still alive like I right. felt that to the depths of my being but there are some that I can't remember you know Luke Perry was one I could remember but Matthew Perry will be one that I will always remember yeah. because I did lose a friend through this yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of memories and friends and ending on a high, let's do this as we round out the episode. Is there a favorite? I mean, listen, there were over 200 episodes of Friends, right? Over a course of a decade or so. But was there any one episode that was like one of your favorites that you can point to that is just always going to be like a Chandler Bing moment that will go down in the record books for you? Mm, Chandler. Uh, no, there was one that was a, um, a, there were many Joey ones that I could remember, mostly because people used to say to me, oh my God, Dr. Boca, that was written about you. So the one with Joey where he mispronounced a word and people, it was happened to be a word that I used to mispronounce. So everybody oh. made so much fun of me. And Fun Bobby was always one, but that's again personal to me. I'm trying to think if there was a Chandler one that really stood. I, I just adored him. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll defer to you. I can't think of like my favorite one right now, but he was just great in everything. He was so great. And again, his timing, it just doesn't get better than Matthew Perry as Chandler Bing for sure. But for me, one of the iconic scenes or episodes, I should say, that to this day, honestly, I'm going to end on this note. If I'm having a bad day and I just need to think of something to crack up in my head about, and I could be alone on the street, people might think I'm absolutely crazy, which most days I am, but I will laugh out loud by myself is the, um, <laughs> is the episode when Chandler and Ross were moving the couch and they were funny. trying to get that damn couch yep. up the, up the stairs and with the pivot and the yep, pivot, the pivot. And, the pivot. <laughs> and it just, I mean, the two of them collectively were hilarious, but it really was Chandler mm-hmm. who just drove it home at the end where he basically just opened up such a mouth to Ross and was basically like, if you fucking say pivot one more time but the way that he yelled out the the word pivot that's something to me that will it's timeless it's iconic it will go down in history for me as as one of the greatest lines ever and that one came into my head as you asked and i just was like oh there's got to be a better one there's got to be a better one but that one was really a good one i have to give you to uh, give it to you and you know my uh, love for monkeys, the fact that there was a capuchin on there. I used to tell my friends all the time, all the facts about the capuchin, because yeah. that was, again, that was, was Marcel, right? That was Marcel. Yes. Marcel, yeah. Um, but that, you know, that's, again, I could li- list every single one of the, the characters and I could identify what I loved about each of them. And those moments where I could relate to them or they could relate to me, they were our literal friends. Like it could have been any one of us. And the next week, somebody else could have been Joey or somebody else could have reminded me of Phoebe or somebody else could have, you know, and 
They were trendsetters. I mean, think about the hairstyles. I mean, there's just so much here. And as of this point of us recording, none of the friends have come out saying anything. And uh, the rumors, got, you know, the rumors that are swirling is they're going to come out with a collective message. But my heart breaks for all of them. It it breaks for us, our listeners. It breaks for society at large. When somebody like this is taken too soon, it's truly just devastating. In pure Chandler Bing-isms, if you will, another one, you know, his great lines, it's like, could I be more sorry? Or could you be more sorry? You know, he did a whole collection of, yeah. of that. And you know what? I couldn't be more sorry yeah. that he's gone too soon because he, even in the darkness, he lit Broad up light. any stage or theater or you name it. And um, he really was loved by all and and he will be sorely, sorely missed, but certainly not forgotten. I, I would imagine that the numbers will skyrocket of those of us who will go back to old episodes and replay them even with our kids. Cause like this yep. generation, like they don't know it the way we do. And I do know that the younger kids jumped on the bandwagon, but nowhere near the way that our generation did because we were living it. And it was back in the day where where our kids now, they wouldn't even be able to comprehend having to wait an entire week for only one half hour of a new show. And yet we all rearranged our schedules around those half hours every week because it was just a time to be with our friends in person and our friends on the television. And that power is something that that is not for the faint of heart. I feel that. I, absolutely. And I just, I, I just had a visualization, as you were saying, I had them, an image of them all in the apartment sitting on the couch together having conversations. Mm. Our kids don't know from that. They're all on their cell phones or a few of them are on their cell phones and two are talking. These were like group conversations that they were having all the time and were there for each other and in the good times and in the bad times. And that I feel like I wish we could get back into this generation, but every generation has their thing and we evolve. And sometimes in that evolution, we lose some of the best. So yeah. Yeah. And not that I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching such great wisdom, but even if, if the listeners out there just take stock to relate to their kids, that the show in and of itself and the ensemble cast and the lack of any competition amongst them, that they truly were friends and they, they were one for all and all for one, even down to the contract negotiations and mm -hmm. walk of fame and, and things of that nature and how they really all did rally and, and the episodes in and of themselves, that there wasn't even competition among the characters that they were portraying. And what a breath of fresh air that is, that it really... Yeah. Again, we, you know, we joke around like, do you not understand the, the assignment here? Maybe the assignment is to have our kids sit down and watch what it's like to have a group of friends that really are there for each other through thick and thin and not for anything, but, but the topics that they covered on the show, it, it wasn't all just fun and games. They, no. they dealt with a lot of heavy issues, but they did it in a way that was so unbelievably organic and authentic. And it really struck a nerve with so many of us in, in the most beautiful way, which was through comedy and inclusiveness and bonding and friendship. And I, you can't ask for more than that. You really can't. Dr. Boca, I get that with you here. So I just wanted to say that. And, oh, thank uh, you. You are my non-therapy therapist, but you are not my non-friends. You are my true friends and I love you dearly. And I appreciate you jumping on on a Sunday. To, I just, you. again, want to remind the listeners too, 
this episode will probably be, you know, a little late to the party, but that makes us even more unpolished. And as we get more information, you know, we can talk about it thereafter. But we did want to jump on and kind of just purge out how we felt about it. Thank you for indulging me in this because it was important to me. And thank you to our listeners for letting Rachel and I process with you. I guess I want to say in a live way, even though this is recorded, but in a timely way, because we were impacted by this, as I'm sure you all were. So I hope you guys have good friends like Rachel is to me, where we can talk about this and be able to find the light through it. So thanks, Rachel. You got it. You got it. So with that being said, I mean, we're I guess it goes without saying that today's episode we are dedicating to Matthew Perry and all the laughs he gave us. Yes. And and in my head too, I'm I'm giggling because I'm now picturing and hearing in my head Janice's laugh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I mean, if that's not the most iconic nails on chalkboard, oh. but we still love to hear it. Yes. Then, you know, we'll leave it at that note. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, concerns, if you want to email us or put in the notes, you know, on whether it's Facebook or Instagram, what your favorite Chandler Bing, and even just Matthew Perry in general memory is that you have certainly share with us. This is how, again, with loss, we, we keep their memory alive. And I think that laughter is the most appropriate medicine in this case to to get us through. So let us know. Email us unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. Send us a message or post on our Facebook and Instagram pages at Unpolished Therapy. And let us know how you feel. So from Dr. Boca and I, thanks for hanging out with us today. And in memory of Matthew Perry, Chandler Bing, and all the other amazing characters that he had given us over the last short 54 years of his life, we are sending love and light to his family and his friends. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage.